This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Well, take your Bibles once again, if you would, and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, as we are making progress through the book of Hebrews, we looked last week at verses 1 through 6, and we'll focus this morning on verses 7 through 19, from verse 7 all the way to the end of Hebrews chapter 3. In the late 1800s, there was probably no one who had more influence on American Christianity than D.L. Moody, not only known for his pastoral ministry and his evangelism, but his work among children and his social work throughout the city of Chicago uh, was absolutely incredible. One of the defining moments in my own life was when, after graduating from college, heading overseas, I had a pastor friend of my father's mail me a package. I opened it up and it was a book called A Passion for Souls, The Life of D.L. Moody, and I took that with me. And uh, God really used his life, the life of D.L. Moody, to make a great impact on my life. He ministered to thousands and thousands of people in Chicago. On the evening, October 8th, 1871, as was his normal habit on Sunday evenings, he preached the gospel. And he preached that evening from a little phrase in Matthew 27, verse 22, that simply says this, what shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Christ? That was his text for the day. That was it. What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? He finished that sermon with these words. He says, I wish you would take this text home with you and turn it over in your minds during the week. And next Sabbath, we will come to Calvary and the cross, and we will decide what to do with Jesus of Nazareth. Moody, unlike many of his generation, did not often press for a decision or have an altar call as some were having. He preached the gospel and left it for them to think about and asked them to think about it the week and come back next week as they would think about the decision that needed to be made. He closed in prayer. Ira Sankey, his music minister, came to sing a closing hymn. Before the hymn was done, they could no longer hear the words of the hymn because it was drowned out by the sound of sirens. It was the beginning of the great Chicago fire. 300 people died that night. 100,000 were left homeless. And three square miles of Chicago were completely burned, including Moody's church. And many in his church who were there that night, who had heard his message, were killed. That moment had a profound impact on the life and ministry of D.L. Moody. You can't read any biography of Moody without a chapter dedicated to the impact that this moment had on his life as he watched those in his church perish in that fire. Reflecting back upon that moment and specifically what God taught him that moment, he says this, listen. He says, I want to tell you one of the lessons that I learned that night, which I have never forgotten. And that is when I preach to press Christ upon the people then and there and try to bring them to a decision on the spot. I would rather have that my right hand be cut off than to give an audience a week to decide what to do with Jesus. 
It is that sense of urgency that Moody felt. It was that sense of urgency that God taught him in that experience that really is the feel of the text for today. A sense of urgency to be obedient and responsive to what God says to us in this moment. Now we ended last week with a simple but difficult little verse of scripture. If you'll look at it, it's in Hebrews 3 verse 6. We ended with this phrase. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We looked at chapter two in the glory of the gospel there. Jesus is this great hero who is sent from God to rescue us from our sins, to sacrifice on our behalf, to deliver us from the fear of death and to bring us to himself. And everyone who comes to him by faith can receive that forgiveness and the freedom of the fear of death. The last week we talked about the joy of becoming a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that we are brought into the family of God, into the house of God, because Jesus was the son of God, by faith we've been adopted, united with Christ, and now all of the benefits of sonship are given to every one of us. It's an incredible thought that in the midst of all of our sin and all of our rebellion, that God the Father was welcoming us back into the house through Jesus Christ. And not just welcoming us back, but then lavishing upon us all of his grace and kindness and glory for all of eternity. And just when we marvel at all that is said there, we come to an if, which we are uncomfortable with. We are his house. We get all of this. We get brought back into the family and all of the kindness and all of the grace is ours. If, indeed, we hold fast our confidence, our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope that we're saved through Jesus, if we hold our confidence and our boasting in our hope. It does seem to be a bit of a difficult statement, but the reality is that is the statement of Hebrews. We are going to have these statements almost every week from here on out. We already had them in chapter two. We will have one again this morning. These types of statements that say, if you hold fast until the end, you are a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the theme of Hebrews, that the primary mark of a true believer is endurance. The primary mark of a true believer is that they keep holding on to Jesus. They don't just do something in the past. They are trusting and following Jesus in the present. This is what God's people do. Over and over and over in Hebrews, it's going to tell us those who keep their eyes on Jesus, those who hold fast, those are the ones who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to make two statements that need to be very clear as we begin this message. This is important for last week and for this week as well. And as we move forward, listen carefully. The first one is this. You cannot earn your salvation. There's absolutely nothing you can do to save yourself. And if God had created a system in which you could do enough good in order to overshadow the bad and get yourself to heaven, it would not even be possible because you could never do enough good to outweigh the bad you've done. You only know half of the bad you've done. You're not even aware of tons of the bad. I can't imagine the weight of growing up in many types of churches, but particularly in the Catholic faith in which you do believe that you have to have Jesus Christ, but yet 
You also have to make sure your good works outnumber your bad or you won't make it to heaven. Can you imagine the insecurity of living every day not knowing if you've done enough good? The truth is there really shouldn't even be any insecurity. You should just already know that you haven't and you have no hope of getting to heaven. But we read Ephesians 2 that says, by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so no one can boast. There is no boasting in the fact that you're saved because you didn't save you. God did through the work of Jesus Christ. It is simply a gift received by faith. You cannot earn your salvation. Statement number one. Statement number two. You cannot lose your salvation. If you are not, if you are not the one who gave it to yourself, you can't lose it yourself. You know, uh, when we are pursuing Christ and God is drawing us to himself, we kind of have this idea that I made a decision for Christ. And that's true. But the only reason you made a decision for Christ or ever desired Christ is because God came after you first. You would have never come after him. He came after you first. He is always the pursuer. And so it is that when you come to Christ, it's because God has begun a work in you and he is stirring in your heart. He is the one who has started this work. God is the one who found you and he won't lose you. John 6, 39, Jesus says this, I will not lose one that has been given to me by the Father. I won't lose one. Those who have been given to me, I will not lose one. Philippians 1, 6 says it this way. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He started it, he'll finish it. Romans 8, those who have been foreknown have also been predestined. And those who have been predestined have been called. And those who have been called have been justified. And those who have been justified will be glorified. In other words, if God saved you, he will ensure you make it till the end. First John 5, 3 says, these things have been written that you may know you have eternal life, which means you don't have to live with a constant insecurity of whether you're right with God or not. It is possible by faith, trusting in what Christ has done for you, not in what you've done, not even in a decision you made, but holding on to Christ, that confidence, that hope that you're saved by what Christ has done, it is possible for you, holding on to that confidence, to know without any shadow of a doubt, even in the midst of the ups and downs in life, that when you die, you'll spend eternity in heaven because of the confidence you have in what Christ has done for you. But the difficulty is this little phrase that we throw around, once saved, always saved. People ask me, do you believe once saved, always saved? Well, I say, well, yes, but maybe not the way you mean it. Because what that's come to be interpreted as is if you said a prayer at the end of the tract or if you made a decision at camp, you don't have to worry about anything the rest of your life, you're good. Is that true? Well, if you truly trusted Christ, there's going to be some ongoing evidence that you've trusted Christ. But if you made a decision at camp or said the prayer at the back of the tract, but it had no influence on your ongoing life, then that's not true because you weren't saved. 
You see, I, I don't really think that phrase is helpful for us. Let me give you a more helpful phrase. A phrase theologians often use, which is more helpful, is perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints. What it means is this. God's children persevere. God's children endure. God's children make it to the end. God's children are faithful. So go back to Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So how do we know that God began a work? Because God continues a work. Because you have a longing for God and you have a conviction for sin and you grieve over things that grieve God. There is ongoing evidence of a previous decision that's been made. And this is what the book of Hebrews is trying to get us to understand, that those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ will have some evidence of that faith. For true believers, salvation is not just something of the past, it's just something of the present. Yes, God saved me, and I'm holding on to Jesus, and I'm trusting Jesus, and I'm following Jesus. Do you have to do that to be saved? Well, if you're saved, you're doing that. And you're going to have some really great days of doing that. And you're going to fail miserably in doing that. But the overall trajectory of your life is one in which you're saying, I'm still holding on to Jesus. Jesus is my hope. Jesus is my life. That's what Hebrews is trying to get us to understand. The greatest evidence of your salvation is really the present. And that's exactly why right after that statement in verse 7, it says this. Therefore... As the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. He repeats it in verse 15. Do you see it there? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So if you're studying a passage, you see something mentioned twice. Well, that's a pretty good indication. It might be a theme and then it's repeated again in verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. So this is what D.L. Moody was discovering. If it's today, do something today. As long as it's called today, exhort one another. Why? That you may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So if you want to know what this text is really all about, it's about today, and it's about you and it's about your response to God's word. That's what it's about. This entire text is about today. It's not about the past. It's about today, and it's about you, and it's about how you respond to God's word. And let me say something. What we're gonna see as we walk through this text, every day of your Christian life is about today, and it's about you, and it's about how you respond to the word of God. And so I, I wanna just encourage you as we walk through this text Try not to think about tomorrow. And even harder, try not to think about someone else who needs this sermon. This is about today, and it's about you, and it's about how you respond to the word of God. Now notice that first little phrase there in verse seven. It says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. Now this is amazing, because he's about to quote Psalm 95 written a thousand years before this. And he takes a word written a thousand years before and he says this, the Holy Spirit's saying something right now. It shows us about the word of God. 
in the word of God, no matter how long ago it was written, it is the Holy Spirit speaking today. And here we are, 3,000 years from Psalm 95. And the text says this, listen, we're gonna quote Psalm 95 and the very Holy Spirit of God is saying something right now to us through it. Showing that the words written 3,000 years ago are about you and about today and about how you respond to the word of God. So let me read it for us, starting in verse seven. If you're there, say amen. That was pitiful. If you're there, say amen. amen. I do that to make sure not only you're there, I know you're there, I just wanna make sure you're awake, all right? Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now verses seven through 11 Quoting Psalm 95 is meant to be a warning to us. Coming out of this difficult phrase in verse six, you are his house. If you hold fast your confidence until the end, well, what do you mean? So we're gonna get some explanation of that. And he begins that with a strong warning based on the example of the Exodus generation. Now, you know this story. But you could read this story in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That is the story of the Exodus generation. It is referring to that generation that spent 430 years in slavery in Egypt. But God heard their cry and responded to their cry and saved them through this mediator named Moses. And there is no generation in all of the Bible, no generation, including the ones after Jesus in Acts 1, no generation that saw more of the spectacular works of God than this generation. They're the ones that saw the plagues inflict all of the Egyptians, but somehow skipped them. They saw the Passover, where the angel of the Lord went and killed all the firstborn, while theirs were saved because of the blood of the Lamb. They're the ones that saw God parted the Red Sea as they crossed over on dry ground, their shoes not even muddy. They're the ones that saw the Egyptian army quickly approaching them on the other side of the Red Sea and they looked back and saw the seas come back together so that the Egyptian army was destroyed. They're the ones that saw God lead them with a cloud during the day and a fire at night 
They're the ones that God saw bring manna from heaven. They're the ones that saw water come out of a rock. No one saw more than this generation. Some of the greatest events of the entire Old Testament, one generation saw. They experienced so much from God. And in the midst of all of these incredible experiences, as God simply said, I saved you from Egypt to bring you to the promised land, all of this to be a picture of salvation. I'm gonna get you out of slavery into the promised land. On that journey, they just griped and complained the entire way. The day they got out of Egypt, they started complaining and they just didn't stop. Now, their complaining can be kind of seen in two words here in verse eight, rebellion and testing. Do you see those words in verse eight, rebellion and testing? Now, if you mark in your Bibles or you're taking notes, it's gonna be helpful for you to see that rebellion is disobedience. This is gonna be helpful in a minute, so write that down. And testing as unbelief. So in my Bible, I circle rebellion and I put disobedience. That's what rebellion is. And testing is unbelief. So by rebellion, it simply means that God consistently said, here's what it means to follow me, and they consistently refused. God, we don't wanna follow you. We want to lead ourselves. And so they were self-willed and they were obstinate towards God. And every time God said, this is what we're doing and this is where we're going, they said, ah, I think we've got something better to do. And then the idea of testing is just they're grumbling and they're complaining. They, they just didn't trust God's heart. They didn't believe that God had good for them. And when God said, we're gonna get you to the promised land, they wouldn't go. Psalm 95 really is written out of one moment in Numbers 14 when God had already said, I've given you the land, it's yours. You just gotta go take it. And I'm gonna fight for you, just walk by faith. But the spies came back all except Joshua and Caleb and said, listen, they're big over there and they're strong and I'm not sure we can do it. And everybody starts to worry and get concerned. And so one entire generation with the promised land right on the other side of the Jordan River God, having already said, it's yours, just go take it, refused to go in because of their lack of belief. They didn't even have to fight for it. I, I will fight for you. God was gonna fight these battles for them, but that generation refused. And as a result of, of that, they never inherited the promises. They never got to the promised land. Now, the reason I said disobedience and unbelief are important words is because the opposite of those two words are words that we talk about a lot here at Prince. We say at Prince that our mission is to lead people to trust and follow Jesus, not just in one moment, but through a lifetime, continually, every day, trusting and following Jesus. And the opposite of disobedience and unbelief is trusting and following Jesus. So their life was marked by disobedience and unbelief. They did not trust God enough to follow him, they constantly resisted him. The opposite of that is what we want from all of you. And that is to trust the Lord, to trust his heart, to trust he's good, to trust his promises. And then in response to that trust, to follow him, submitting yourself to his authority. Because here's the warning. If you don't live a life of trusting and following Jesus, if instead of that you live a life like they did of disobedience and unbelief, what will happen is your heart will become hardened. That's what it says in verse eight. Your heart's gonna get calloused. 
It's gonna lose its feeling. It's gonna lose its desires for the things of God. And so this doesn't happen immediately. It happens over time. And let me tell you the way it happens. It happens this way. That the Lord prompts you in some decision. He tells you to repent of sin. He tells you to confess. He tells you to get right in a relationship. He tells you to step forward and be baptized, whatever it is, and you say no. You don't trust him because you don't trust his heart. You don't follow him. And then you do that again the next day and you do that the next day and the next day. And what happens over time through all of those decisions, your heart starts to get hardened and you have lost that desire and that feeling for the Lord. This is what happened to this generation. That over time, they just said no to God. They wanted the promised land. They just didn't want to be faithful today. Like they wanted heaven. They just didn't want obedience and submission. And they ignored the word of God and their heart got hardened. And so here's this warning for us. The Holy Spirit is saying to you today, don't let that happen to you. Today, if you hear him say something to you, do it. Because if not, over time, those little decisions day after day are going to harden your heart. And there's this story, this tragic story of a generation of people that heard all the good news. They, they, they saw Moses' face glowing as he spent time with God on the mountain. And they saw Moses come down and they got the word of God. They heard the word. They were around the people. They saw the miracles. And they all died without receiving the promises. All buried in the wilderness, never getting to the promised land. Why? Because they just didn't trust and follow the Lord. They started well, but their hearts grew cold. You know how it happened? It happened because of today. Because day by day, they refused to trust and follow the Lord. And so there is now this strong exhortation for us. So there's this warning. This can happen. This can happen. You, you can grow cold towards the Lord by not doing what he tells you to do today. And so the response to that in verse 12 is this. There's this exhortation. So Instead of that, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you. He's speaking to the church, those who've made a profession of faith. Take care, lest there be in you an, an unbelieving heart like this. We don't want your life to be a tragedy like theirs is. So it says, take care, which is a word that means to, to, to watch out. Like to keep an eye on your heart, to keep an eye on your obedience. Do not have an, see it, an unbelieving heart, a heart that grows calloused. Because if you, look at the trajectory, if you say no to God consistently, then your heart gets calloused and hardened. And the result is then you, look at this, fall away from the living God. Now that word, fall away, is the word in the Greek where we get our word, apostasy. You've heard this if you've been around church. Apostasy means to abandon something. So we talk about those who are apostates in the faith. What does that mean? Well, it refers to those who made some decision. It's the parable of the soils. We see this often. And maybe they get excited and they join the church and they get involved and they serve and they give. But then at some point, they just stop following Jesus. At some point, they turn their back on Jesus. Now, you, you do know there's this category of people, right? You know this. We see it in scripture all over the place. But don't you know it from your own experience? You've seen these people. They make a decision. Seems like they're great, but then they, they seem to fall away. 
and they leave Christ. This is a major concern for the author of Hebrews. He doesn't want that to happen to you and to those who's writing to. He doesn't want people to make a decision and then go back to their old life. Now, here's the thing. These people don't fall away because God let go of them. They don't fall away because God said, oh my word, they failed again. I am done with this person. They fall away because they've let go of God. It's because they've made a decision at some point, probably not an actual moment in which they said, I've decided to leave the Lord, but through lots of days of not trusting and following the Lord, they have decided to walk away from the Lord and their heart has become hardened. They have walked away. This is a real thing. And so we don't have to be insecure that somehow God's gonna leave us. God has promised those who are his, he will hold forever. But we also have to be aware that there are people with very good intentions that join the church and make a lot of decisions and give a lot of money and do a lot of good things that will show that they weren't actually ever saved because they turned away from God. That's the warning. And it's supposed to make us feel the weight of the warning. As he's speaking to the church, do not let this happen to you. You say, well, well how do we do that? How do we, how do we hold on to Jesus? How do we hold on to this confidence? Well, that's what he tells us in verses 13 through 15. I'm going to say these quickly. He says, let me give you some practical advice on what it looks like to, to make sure your heart doesn't get hard. And you end up one day just not caring about Jesus or loving Jesus at all. He says, the first thing is this. Well, you need to watch each other today. Write that down. That's verse 13. Watch each other today. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now listen, I'm gonna come back next week. I wasn't planning this. And I'm gonna preach an entire sermon on verse 13. I think we really need to dig down and try to understand as a church what it looks like to be involved in each other's lives every day to make sure that we all make it to the end. Faithful, not with a hardened heart. And he says, one of the primary ways in which God keeps you from a hard heart that ignores God is other people speaking into your life. By the way, I'm gonna give away next week's sermon. I'm not gonna say that. This, this is one of the ways God keeps you faithful is other people involved in speaking into your life. So we watch each other today. It says it twice, every day, as long as it's called today. The second thing is this, you watch Jesus today. Verse 14, you watch Jesus today. This may be the great theme of Hebrews. Keep your eyes on Jesus, watch Jesus. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm till the end. Now, let me tell you, if you're worried about verse six, verse 14 is a great antidote because here's what it's saying. We know that we have come to share in Christ, past tense. We know that we've been saved. How? If we hold our faith in Jesus until the end. It's not saying if you hold your faith in Jesus, you might get saved. No, no, no. It's saying the way you know you were saved is because you're holding your faith until the end. This is, this is evidence of what has already happened. This is a big distinction. God is continuing to work in you and you're striving and you're walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know that you are a part of Christ if you're holding on to Christ. So you just keep your eyes on Jesus. 
the last one is this, you watch yourself today. So you, you watch each other, you watch yourself, you watch Jesus. But verse 15 is you watch yourself. So he repeats it again. So, so what do I do with this? What do I do with this whole idea of a hardened heart? Well, here's what you do today. If he's speaking to you, do what he says. That's it. Today, if he's speaking to you, do what he says, because every little decision you make is determining the direction of your life. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about our 100 Sunday. If you're new to the church, you should have gotten here earlier because we gave out $100 to everybody a few months ago. And we told them to go use it for the kingdom and then we celebrated. But the principle God taught us out of that moment has become extremely significant to me. And the principle was this. The way in which God accomplishes great things is through a bunch of little things. So if we want to see God do great things, well, the way you do that is you go out and just do a bunch of small things. That's it. The secret to great things is small things. I am starting to realize more and more that that is also the secret to the Christian life. Do you want to take a hold of the promises? Do you want to get all of God's best? Do you want to experience all of the blessings of Christ? I want to see God do great things in my life. You know how you do it? Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. That's how you do it. It's not that exciting. We want to see the big things. Well, the answer is today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. You just watch yourself today. You trust Christ today. You follow Christ today. Today, if you just hear him speaking to you, then obey him. Because if you don't, your heart is going to go hard. And then he ends this passage with some really penetrating questions just to get us to be reminded of the kind of people that didn't make it. Who, who were those who heard and rebelled? It was those who left Egypt led by Moses. You remember the ones that got over the Red Sea, the one who saw, they didn't make it. They saw tons of stuff, but they didn't make it. With whom was he provoked for 40 years? That generation that saw those great things. It was those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness. To whom did he swear? They would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient. So uh, the issue was, as they experienced, they saw, they were around, but they just did not walk with the Lord. So we see, verse 19, that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. I'm so glad it ends that way. Because it reminds us the only work that God is calling us to is the work of belief. I believe that I'm going to make it to the end because of what Jesus has done for me. I'm going to believe. I'm going to believe. And the evidence of that belief is that I'm going to walk in that belief. That God is asking for you belief. This generation stopped believing in the Lord. They just did not believe that God's heart was good. They did not believe that God would keep his promises. They did not believe that it was worth following the Lord. And so they Now, I had a couple of people ask me this week, said, Pastor, after last week's sermon, I'm nervous. I made a decision when I was young, and now I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if that decision mattered. To which I respond, well, what decision did you make? I don't, that's what matters. I made a decision, great. What decision you see, here's the decision that has to be made for every person. I'm going to decide to trust Jesus and to follow him. So, so we, 
we have misunderstood this idea that salvation is I make one decision, I'm gonna trust Jesus now, but I'm just gonna forget Jesus and go do my own thing. No, the decision is I'm gonna surrender my life to Jesus Christ. I'm gonna trust him with everything. And I'm gonna have some good days and some bad days, but overall what I'm saying is I have made a decision to trust and follow Jesus. And the evidence of that decision is that we keep trusting and following Jesus. He who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. If there is absolutely no evidence of love for Jesus and following Jesus, and trust of Jesus, I don't know about your decision. That's the whole point. And when we make that decision to really surrender ourselves to Christ, God completes that. He does that work in us. But the evidence of that is that we are walking with him. Over the trajectory, the course of our lives, we are continually responding to the word of God. You know, I've learned something over the years, having done a lot of counseling People have come to me a lot in my ministry and said, Pastor, I don't know if I'm saved. I'm worried. And I'll say, talk to me about it. And they'll say, well, I, uh, I love Jesus. I just want to start with that. And I, I, there's nothing more I want than to trust Jesus. I just, I want to get to heaven. And, and I just, I want Jesus to be my life. Like, I love Jesus, but I, I, don't, I don't have the confidence. And so I just pray the prayer every night before I go to bed and just hoping the prayer works as if there's a secret prayer. There's no secret prayer. It's like they have the feeling that I, I said the prayer, but I might have missed a word. And I don't want to miss a word, so I say it over and over. But here's the thing. What I say to them is this. Listen, your confidence can't be in a prayer. Your confidence is in the heart of Jesus. So those people that come to me and say that, I don't ever worry about those people. And I don't lead them in another prayer. You know why? Because if you come to me and you love Jesus and you want to follow Jesus and you want to serve Jesus, I feel really good that you know Jesus. Here's the people I worry about. The ones that never come to see me. The ones that made a decision at camp when they were five years old. There's no love for Jesus, no care about the things of the Lord. Their confidence is in a decision they made that has had no impact on the rest of their life. That's who I'm worried about. And that's, that's who the author of Hebrews is worried about. But here's where you have a warning. And listen, I, I, one of the things that has been hard about this, I told Andrea last night, I said, I don't know why I chose to preach Hebrews. I'm kind of regretting this a couple of weeks in. Like we, should, we, we were doing good, like 96 weeks in Psalms. We should have stayed with it. It was sweet and emotional and I was doing great. I had like another hundred to go. We could have kept going, but I chose Hebrews. And, and what I have to be careful of as a preacher is not take a text that has a warning and soften it too much and miss the point of the text. This is intended to be a warning. It's intended for you to say, I'm confident in my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm trusting to him. But, but, but true believers take the warnings and say, okay, Lord, I hear the warning. I want to follow you today. I don't want my heart to grow cold. It can grow cold. I don't want it to be calloused. I don't want to have an unbelieving heart. I don't want to be another one of those stories. And so, because I love you and I want to walk with you, I'm going to, I'm going to say, Lord, I want to follow you today. You see, real believers hear a text like this and say, I'm, I'm ready, Lord. What do you want from me today? And that's it. So I struggle a lot with application for sermons. And I was thinking this morning, what should the application be? And here's the truth. The application is for you today to do whatever God is calling you to do. Repent of a sin, confess something, finally commit to being baptized, give your life to Jesus Christ, join the church. I don't know what it is, 
But I know in my life, I've heard a hundred sermons and God's convicted me of something that wasn't in the sermon, but God was speaking. You know what that is? That's God saying something to you today. And you got one responsibility, obey. And you do the next thing tomorrow. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.